Welcome to another episode of Corkout History, where we drink Portuguese wine and we talk about Portuguese history, mostly the wine. My name is André, and I'm Inês, and welcome to Corkout History. Well, hello and welcome once again, my friends. Hello, Inês. How are you today? I'm great. I'm brilliant. How are you? I'm okay. Uh, ready for another episode? Yeah, I am. I sure am. Ready for another episode, ready for this lovely bottle of wine. What are we drinking today, Inês? Today we are drinking Guarda Rios. It's the name of another bird, this wine. We yes. clearly have a, a We have a thing for a birds. Here. Yeah, we have a thing for wi wines with names of birds. So we had Papa Figos the other time and now Guarda Rios, right? Guarda Rios, yeah, so it's the name of a bird and it means the, it could be translated as well, as the bird that... The keeper of the river, something like that? The keeper of the river, I suppose, it's yeah. It's cute. Um, yeah, yeah, it is quite cute, isn't it? It's one of them with the long beaks and... Um, that live yeah, by the river. I don't know much. <laughs> they <laughs> yeah. probably live by the river. Let's assume so, let's assume so, yeah. I don't know much about it. But uh, on about the wine... Um, I have my bottle of red, wine. are you drinking red as well? Yeah, yeah, I'm drinking red. I always drink red, don't I? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> correct. Okay, and this wine is from uh, uh, the center, the center, uh, the central part of Portugal, yep. and the area is called Ribatejo. So it's above uh, the Tejo. So it's above the Tagos River. So exactly. it's in the Riba means above. Yeah. Yeah. And Tejo is. Tagus. The name, yeah, it's yeah. a translation of Tagus. So it means above the Tagus River and it's the area where we're from, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. It is indeed. <laughs> <laughs> so we're a little closer to home today with the wine. We are. We are. Okay. I hope our listeners might have a glass of wine themselves to join us. It will definitely make this um, a more enjoyable experience for all of them. But if you don't, uh, feel free to drink anything of your liking <laughs> and if you don't if you are unable if you're driving or unable to drink anything or you just don't want to don't let me tell you what to do <laughs> so today we're going to be diving into the peculiar life of Feliciana de Milão Feliciana Feliciana how, how would we say this Feliciana of Milan or Milano in Italy yeah Milano. Yeah, I have no idea I... how British people would... S well, they would say Milan, I think. But I have no idea how they would say Feliciana, maybe. Feliciana. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, something yeah. like that. But it's Feliciana um, de Milan that we're talking about. Wait, but from Milan? Um, isn't this podcast meant to be about Portuguese history? Why are we covering mm. an Italian lady <laughs> here? But we aren't. Not quite, you see. So, despite her name, Feliciana was as much from Milan as you or me. And we're not, just to be clear. <laughs> we, are not. we are definitely not from Milan. <laughs> so, she was actually very much Portuguese, but she enjoyed a good publicity stunt. And we'll get to that in a minute. Right, so in terms of sources, this time we have seven contemporary documents which provide us with some secure and established information on Feliciana. I won't go into details about what we get from each one, but here are the facts. We know that she was born in Lisbon, not Milan, mm, right. <laughs> on the 8th October of 1629. Although there are some authors that mention different dates, but these documents confirm it has 1629. Um, we also know that she ingressed in the convent in March 1659, 
when she was 30 years old. Oh, she was a, she which, so she's a nun. Yes, yes, she is a nun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, she will become a nun. Yes, that. Um, and she joins when she's 30 years old, which is, I mean, rather late by all accounts um, in the 17th century. <laughs> Not now, but uh, anyway. And we also know that in the convent she held two of the highest roles, being a prioress, I think you can call it this way, uh, or maybe a mother superior, maybe that's a more common name, and then an abbess. Uh, I mean, I know most of us are probably not familiar with the hierarchy of a convent. What I mean, my friends, is that she was the boss nun. First she was the little boss (laughs) nun, and then she became the big boss nun. (laughs) Cool. Out of these documents, we also have some of her correspondence with a high-ranking noble. And we also know for a fact that she had a relationship with the king. I mean, an adulterous relationship with the king, that is. Or in other words, they were lovers. But let's not put the cart before the horse. We will go into more detail about that in a little while. And we would probably have a lot more documents if it not had been for the golden trio of document destruction. One, the big earthquake of 1755, which we will probably talk about in another season. Two, the French invasions. Yeah, thanks, Napoleon. You're a dear, really. And three, the extinction of the religious orders uh, headed by the Friar Killer, which took place in the 19th century in Portugal, and we'll probably talk about that later as well, but lots of reasons for documents to get lost. Definitely. However, these seven confirmed documents are in line with other contemporary information, lending it some more credibility. After her death, there's a period of about a hundred years during during which we don't get any more references to her and no one mentions her, but then we get to the 19th century and with it comes a lot of creative freedom. (laughs) And uh, we get these biographies that fill in the gaps uh, uh, with bits that we don't have records for. You know how it goes, the 19th century did love a great story. They did, they sure did. (laughs) One of the main gaps in this information is Feliciana's life before she joined the convent. Who was this woman? Where did she come from? Who were her parents? We don't know any of that. Of course that with these gaps the 19th century authors promptly filled them and they started building their stories uh, and they probably got uh, their inspiration from oral lore still in the public imagination at the time and gossip about her life. Feliciana had been quite famous in her day and there were quite a few curious snips and myths and little stories about her. So this probably reached those authors and they just got creative. Now, shall we also indulge in this mystery for a little while? In the first document we have for her, this interview she attends to join the convent, she says she doesn't know her parents' name. Hmm. To further this mystery, documents from the convent reveal a lack of records for any dowry associated with her. There is, however, a reference to how a certain Feliciana Maria de Bivar was accepted into the convent due to um, a donation made by a third person. And to the best of our knowledge, these documents are complete. The pages are numbered and there are no apparent gaps. So it's not like they lost um, pages where um, the records of her dowries would be. So either this 
woman was accepted into the convent without a dowry, which would be unusual at best, or she had her entrance paid for by a mysterious person. Right, all very suspicious. The next possible clue on this birth mystery comes from one of the many witticisms that make Feliciana famous. Trying to get to a church through a crowded celebration, Feliciana asked her servant to head the way. And men were just as trash in the 18th century as they are today, and one pinches the servant. Feliciana admonishes him, saying something along the lines of Don't touch or damage or maybe bruise the fruit which you shall not buy. To which the cocky fellow says, I can buy it, I have money plenty for that. And Feliciana answers with, Clearly you misjudge who you're talking to. This little anecdote seems to indicate a certain status. It shows that Feliciana was wealthy enough to employ a servant and she seemed confident enough in her status, judging by that last remark. Now, this little episode seems to be enough to feed a bunch of wild tales about her origins. My favorite, and one of the ones that seems to have been most popular still in Feliciana's life, is that Feliciana was a foundling baby. An abandoned baby left at the foundling wheel, or the baby hatch. This was a system popularized in the Middle Ages, and that lasted until the 19th century, almost on the border with the 20th century in Portugal. And so it, how it worked was when people were not able to care for their children, they could go and bring the babies to abandon them in a safe place, usually a convent or a hospital or something like that. The way this would work is there would be a small crib inbuilt into the outside wall of a convent, for instance, and people would put the baby in and spin the wheel or the hatch similar to a revolving door. This would ensure the user's anonymity and ensure the child would be taken care of. Just so that people have an idea, between the middle of the 1600s until 70, 1775, 85,000 children were left in just one foundling will in Lisbon. Just one. And that was the one at the Holy House of Mercy, a charity institution of the Catholic Church that we will eventually talk about. And just as a curiosity, Later in the 18th century, the Duke of Lafonge and the Abad Correa de Serra, two figures of the Academy of Sciences in Portugal, will be responsible for the creation of the lottery games as a way of raising money, among many other causes, for these children. They will actually convince Queen Maria I to make these games legal so that they could use these funds to, to fund the religious houses where these children were taken. And it's very curious to think that like these games of betting and of luck are born and legalized in a religious institution just like the House of Mercy, but they do have a very important role in financing the projects there. And actually, there's another thing, which is a common common urban legend, or at least it's in everyone's imagination, is that the expression andar a roda, going around the wheel, which basically means drawing the winning numbers from the wheels of fortune, actually comes from the roda dos expostos, the foundling wheel. So basically these two expressions would be connected also because it was some of the children that were left at the foundling, foundling will 
that were responsible for making the wheels of fortune turn around to get to to sort out the number the winning numbers so yeah this is all connected and uh it's just a little side note and sorry for the detour and now let's just go back to feliciana it, it was thought that feliciana was one of these babies abandoned in this way Others speculated that she was a daughter of a Jewish couple, the bastard daughter of a nobleman, an independent woman working as a tutor, so as you can see, all the stories you can imagine. One of these 19th century authors that uh, writes about her states that she was the daughter of a merchant from Milan, so here is the connection to Milan, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. who who upon his imminent death left her to be looked after by another merchant who raised her with his own daughter and had them learn several languages and get an education by the best tutors. So there's a lot going on here. (laughs) Um, He goes on to imagine that she had been tutoring herself and that, uh, that that way she had put together enough money for her own dowry and that's how she would get into the convent. Yeah, I mean, independent, I like it, but I mean, a bit sus, as there are no other records of this. Yeah, the author mentions he got this information from a manuscript that nobody else has mentioned, so that's a bit dodgy, isn't it? Could be true, but... uh, On top of this, he continues on another manuscript, and this time he tells... A story of her life outside of Lisbon, uh, with the love tragedy and her broken heart, and that's how she would eventually end up in a convent. Anyway, uh, very suspicious as well, but very in trend with the romantic periods yeah. that writers exactly. um, I think that we were living on. The, yeah, one of the main things we have to take from this. <laughs> yeah, 19th century always adding a bit of um, drama exactly. to it, isn't it? Exactly. There's also from the 19th century, there's another, author, there's another author who describes how he imagined she would be carrying herself strolling around Lisbon. Another goes to town on her love affair with the king. Another, you get my point. Um, they turned Feliciana into a good story, which, don't get me wrong, as long as we don't look at them as accurate sources, just as we wouldn't look at a historical novel as an accurate source these days, uh, then that's fine. <laughs> and now here we come in the 20th century turning Feliciana into an even better story. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cheers to that. Yeah, cheers to that. Chin chin. Chin chin. Let me have a sip. All right. <laughs> so now on one of the papers I have heavily relied on to do this episode, the author wonders whether this secrecy about her origins, which opens a space for all this wild speculation, was deliberately created by Feliciana herself. The deliberate omission about her origins in that interview document before she entered the convent, along with what seems to have been a lifelong care not to reveal any details about her life before joining the convent, we have some reasons to believe that her adoption of Milan in her name might have been um, a social construction, so to speak. I mean... Right, so... Did she never sign anything like that? She 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 did sign everything like that. Okay, so she did. Yeah, right. she did. She did. So she 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 took that. So she did that construction. Yeah. She she used it. Yeah. yeah. The point is like, was it completely made up? Maybe. I mean, there are some documents that seem to establish her as a cousin to a count. 
one of the hypotheses put forward is that she might have been an illegitimate child of Joana of Aragon, daughter who was daughter of Leonor de Milan, hence the name of Milan. This theory would sort of account for her supposed wealth and education growing up, the possible sizable donation paid to the convent that allowed her to enter, her reputation... I mean, it fills a lot of gaps. We don't have, however, enough sources to probably back this theory up. If this theory is right, at an illegitimate child of a woman, everything is working against these records. I mean, you know how hard records are to get anyway? And then more so on illegitimate children, more even so on an illegitimate child of a woman. There's no records. In any case, even if this story is true and she was indeed the illegitimate daughter of Joanna and that's where she got the patronymic of Milan, since Feliciana always said that she did not know who her parents were, opting for the name of Milan would always be her choice. I mean, this might have been the origin of it, we don't know. She might have been inspired by it, but if she, if her story was that she didn't know her parents, she, it was always her option to use Milan. So either she made it up or she got it from here, but it was always her choice. Okay, so, and just to be clear, we don't know. So we don't know, we don't know. about we her don't parents, know. we don't know where she was born, we don't know where she grew up until she got to the convent, or do we? We know she was born in Lisbon. Okay. Uh, she she replied she was born in Lisbon and we know the date. We mm -hmm. just don't know anything about the parents or her life before right. joining. Okay. At the end, what all this version seems to be working from is that Feliciana was an independent, spirited, extremely well-educated nun at the convent of Odivelas. She knew philosophy, history, several languages. She was clever and daring and she was close to the court. And eventually she becomes lover of the king. She writes letters and she was famous for her clever remarks on them. Apart from all this, there are also some strong suggestions that she might have come from some sort of wealthy background, although we do not know which one. Exactly. That's, that's basically the facts that we have about Feliciana. So why did Feliciana join the convent? Yeah, this shouldn't come as a shock to you at this moment, but we don't know. We simply don't know. I mean, we should, however, bear in mind that there were basically two options for a 17th century woman. You either got married or you joined the convent. There is no real third option. There was no real alternative for a woman to be independent and self-sufficient without being marginalized in society. The convent often stood as an option for education and independence of masculine authority, an option where a woman could cultivate herself, dedicate herself to knowledge, and hold authority in her own right. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting that you actually mentioned that because at first us and anyone can can look at um, conferences like places of oppression and of regulation and that uh, you are subjected to a rule and, and everything but actually for women they were for a long time spaces of freedom and like of, of possibility yeah, they were and a of, safe space yeah. they were a safe space away from there you go uh, away from masculine authority yeah it's 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 kind of a shift in in how we look at them because it one is, can fall is. very easily into looking at them as just like 
this controlling thing and they're yeah, they're not just like a prison and yeah. an oppression system yeah and there is more to it there is more to it much more okay but but after all why are we actually talking about um feliciana what distinguished her from all the other nuns well this one feliciana she was a writer and that's one of the things that distinguishes her what did she write Don't worry, it's not some semi-famous book that you have to pretend to have read or heard of before to look cultured. No. Feliciana's favorite media was poetry and the public letter. Right, so public letter, what's, what's that? Well, at the time there was this concept of public letters. I suppose we can compare it to opinion articles in newspapers or <laughs> Twitter, yes, or... You know, almost like a Bridgerton issue thing. You get the gist. These were extremely popular, circuiting the monasteries and the court. Some were conceived as public from the start, and others were what we call private public letters. They were written to a specific person, but conceived in such a way that they were to be openly read and distributed. Right, and it's really interesting how this genre manipulates the concept of privacy. There's occasionally a tinge of voyeurism in these letters. They they play between private correspondence to be open to the public, which at times nears them to a subversive experience, highlighted by the content, which is also often politicized or related to the court or of any other like issues of the day. Yeah, and there is also another play on subversion with these letters. Considering many of these were letters between women, there is also a power in turning this public in an age where women were often relegated to the private sphere and not having a public voice. Right, so this actually gave a voice to those who were yes, silent. It, yeah, it brought light into these relationships between women. Right, and just just to say that this this no these letters were actually not printed; they were copied by hand and put into circulation which is a lot of work, but how, how did this work? Basically, the reader was more of a reader and a photocopier at the same time. Well, not, not a photocopier, I guess. There were no photo involved. <laughs> so just a reader and a copier? Anyway, you get what I'm saying. Odd and, and lengthy, I'm sure. But this network, which was mostly comprised of nuns and monks and nobility, would make these letters circulate like that. However, this was not always restricted to convent court in Lisbon or in very specific circles or even the country or even, well, the kingdom. Um, sometimes this network would reach places like Paris and, and other kingdoms and be translated into other languages. So these letters made their way. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's such an odd system, and the system obviously made them subject to slight alterations along the way, and I mean, sometimes <laughs> not so slight, yeah. because the reader is copying them and, you know, changing a little bit, uh, a little bit here, a little bit there, so... It's like that saying in Portuguese, whoever tells a story adds... Adds a, a dot? A dot? <laughs> yeah, that's basically... <laughs> sometimes a little bit from th that a dot. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, that's one of the issues with this genre, is that the author is not only vulnerable to these alterations, but also to good old identity theft, both in the sense that the content might be stolen, like a little bit like plagiarism, 
or that a fake letter might be written and attributed to Feliciana. Mm. Mm-hmm. We're gonna see a little bit more right. on that. <laughs> to us today, this system sounds, you know, completely bizarre. We live in an age where words are impressed and unchangeable to the last dot. Or are they? W- <laughs> I know. Well, that's for but another I another mean, time discussion for another for time. For the most part. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, what the author wrote usually is what all his readers will read. However, this was not the case throughout most of history. I was so fascinated by this concept of network of public letters. That was also one of the aspects that led me to pick Fliciana to talk about in the podcast. Right, which is not something that we always explain how we get these people, how we choose, how we make our selection <laughs> for the podcast. I think you get it because of what they do and their extraordinary lives and whatnot. But yeah, um, here we are. Now we know how Inish chose Feliciana, <laughs> Feliciana. and why. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. A lot of them is just like, I like this <laughs> and I want to talk about it and I think you should hear it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, um, let me have a sip of wine and we can conti- continue. <laughs> Very well, take your time. Yeah, so um, it's interesting to notice that Feliciana always signed with her own name, not only in her letters, but also throughout her life at the convent. She did not pick another name, as some people do, a religious name when they get into, when they join an order. And she never used the title of Suror or Sister, like Sister Feliciana, as it would have been expected for someone joining the convent. She only ever signed she only ever signed as Dona, meaning Lady Feliciana. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's interesting because as well it goes with all that um um identity that she's mm-hmm. placed with when she didn't reveal anything about her past and she always takes her identity very much into her own hands a little bit as well if we consider like that her works are never biographical obviously because there you go she never spoke uh, about her life and it's always about a letter so a letter is always in the first person and it's always her speaking to someone so there's an an interesting identity play uh, in here there's also the identity and as well in like literary terms the, the, the idea of authorship that that yeah, then is exactly. is kept in this um, written records, yeah, 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 very much so. So during the seventeenth century, we saw the development of a female literary scene, something which had been pretty much unthinkable until then in Portugal. This scene is particularly active in relation to life in the convents. I mean, this makes sense. These are places where we have literate women dedicated to knowledge and with a stable life environment. And, and, even, is, you know. and even the examples that we have that are prior to the 17th century, because we do have some in the Middle Ages, are from mm-hmm. convents. Like That's, that's always yeah. been a hub yeah. for, for this kind of thing. Yeah. Yes, because I mean, a stable environment, a safe environment, and obviously knowing how to write are, you know, some of the main ingredients to, to be able to do it. Writing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> Although the religious thematic is, of course, very present in the literature, it is not by any means restricted to it. 
nuns were writing about unreligious themes as well. There's, you know, profane themes and... Um, yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they talk about other stuff. Yeah. There's a number of nuns that distinguish themselves through their writing. And this happens across various countries. And in Portugal, we have names like uh, Sister or Suror, Violante do Céu, and Sister Maria do Céu. Uh, it's interesting to note that Céu means sky. So mm-hmm. one is like violent. Violent is just the name of the sky and the other one is Maria of the sky mm-hmm. <laughs> and these two are among the most famous writer nuns but in terms of female intellectuals we have others like Bernarda Lacerda or something I would love to cover in another episode is this group of intellectuals around the princess Dona Maria oh we will we will I'm sure we will <laughs> I'm sure we will get there. (laughs) We have also mentioned that Feliciana moved seamlessly between the convent and the royal court. More than that even, isn't it? And she was clever, amusing, and she was also the master of a sharp tongue, which (laughs) seemed to have lightened the mood wherever she went. And that could probably have been enough to catch the eye of the king because they eventually end up being lovers. Um, But it's worth going over the somewhat special relationship that convents and the royal court had at the time and that they actually have during this a few centuries. It's not only like in the 17th century. It's it's a little bit before and it's a little bit after until uh, the 19th century at least. Yeah, and you see, we, th- we tend to think of the past mostly as this very strict time where everyone was very sexually repressed or, well, where everyone was repressed. And um, we... <laughs> several ways. Yes, just repressed. <laughs> and what could be more repressed sexually and not so only sexually <laughs> than a convent, right? And that's not quite the picture that we have when we actually look at the relationships in there. I mean, of course, there there's that obvious surface, but the truth is often more layered. And in time, in a time when everything is a sin, how big can how big a sin can it really be? <laughs> yeah. So the 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 reality is a lot more complex because. Under the strictest repression, there is usually a subversive reaction that often results in the complete opposite of what was being attempted. So the 17th and 18th centuries were marked by this culture of the excess and this, as we just said, works actually against it. So works in both ways. Yeah, I think it's like you have a lot of repression and everything is very strict and grim and then you have the complete opposite when everything is almost libertine in its um, nature. Yes, and convents were famous for being visited by nobility and kings that got it on with the nuns. (laughs) These men were even called freiraticus, um, which I'm going to take the liberty of losing translating it as nun eaters. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit much. Nun eaters. Maybe, maybe not nun eaters. Maybe nun lovers. Right. I mean, okay. Something like that. <laughs> Out of these convents, none was more famous for these practices than the convent of Odivelas, which is the one that Feliciana was at. It's actually amazing to think how this specific convent will be 
will have this reputation not only in Feliciana's lifetime, it's a thing that goes throughout the centuries. So, and yeah. I mean, even, even today, there's still songs about it kind of thing. I isn't know. It? <laughs> <laughs> it's so yeah, crazy true, to think true. that, like, I remember being in school and these, like, you know, slightly, what would you call it? Lascivious songs or something about, yeah, popular, about this place. Yeah. And you didn't really understand why until, you know. Until you did. Until but. you go and study history. Until <laughs> exactly. you go and study history and you uh, realize that Covent has been a great place for a long time. Yes, a fun yeah. place. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, in the first half of the 17th century, the convent had around 1,200 nuns. So that's that's a, v- a huge convent. Yeah, that's and even for today. Well, maybe today they're smaller. But I mean, even for today, that's huge. At the time, that was, you know, it's a giant convent. And... and the convent, apart from being very populated, it was also located in the outskirts of Lisbon, which put it in a perfect situation to have this very close relationship with the court. It was just out of the city, so <laughs> very handy. Um, many convents were the cultural and leisure centers of their times. There were plays that were being put on, there were literary meetings that took place, nobles and intellectuals would visit and would also fall for the nuns um, and although not of course when we say this we're not saying that all convents were the same there were some that were really quite strict whereas others just became the playground of kings and nobles yeah yeah it seems like quite a party <laughs> i i find this you know dichotomy uh, fascinating and i'm sure it will come up again and you know give us the opportunity to look further into into this So there is no doubt that being the lover of the king was what brought Feliciana to the center stage at the time. However, it was definitely her personality, how clever her sayings and writings were that have us talking about her still to this day. So, all right. So, and and who was this king? Who is he? Right. So he was King Afonso VI who I have to say was not one of our most impressive kings. (laughs) No, no. He also didn't really have a long time to... Anyway. No, he didn't. Um, His father... Okay, it's not great, is it? Starting to talk about the man by referring to his father. (laughs) That's already a bit telling. But anyway, so his father was the king John IV, the one who restored the Portuguese independence from the Habsburgs. Uh, right, okay, so mm. let's cover this real quick. <laughs> Portugal was under the power of the Habsburg dynasty for 60 years. During this time, usually called the Iberian Union, Portugal lost its independence and was under the Spanish throne. Then there was a revolt and a war and King John IV became king of Portugal. And Portugal was independent once more. Okay, so just to put some dates in there, this happened between 1580 and 1640. Yeah, it was those 60 years, that's right. Yeah. And, right, so this lover boy is the king's heir, King Afonso VI. Apparently, he had some disease as a child that left him paralyzed on the left side of the body, and he was a bit mentally unstable. Um, I mean... We don't know exactly the extent of these things because then he was, um, he only ruled for six years, after which he was deposed by his brother, who deemed him incapable of ruling and imprisoned him and married his wife. Nice. 
so obviously you know with these things we always have to think things with a little bit of grain of salt because we don't know he was replaced so there might be a little bit of propaganda involved or not i mean seems like he wasn't terribly interested in ruling but um yeah but there was also a lot of campaigning for 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 his brother to take the power and well he took the power and his wife Um, but yeah (laughs) it's not it's not a great it's not a great it's not a great scene and i think it was last episode that we said like brotherly bonds in this podcast seem to be really complicated the best keeps on happening (laughs) yeah anyway but he he actually wasn't that interested in ruling uh, apparently uh, let's go with the official uh, tale and instead he seems to have kept himself very busy with his lovers we don't know exactly how long the relationship with the king and feliciana lasted but if we are to believe some some documents um most scholars think that it lasted for around five years and there are even some records that seem to indicate that Feliciana might not only have gathered some inspiration for letters and texts from these relationships, but that they might actually have had a daughter. Ta-da! <laughs> of course no one cares about his daughter because, well, she's a no. daughter and, well, everything. He's not even a king yes. anymore, so... <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Records are not great, um, uh, but yeah, however, they seem to indicate that this would have been so and that the daughter would later join the convent as well. In any case, this relationship is what gave Feliciana the opportunity to rise to fame, to be known, and that's what we're here for. Exactly. Um, In terms of her famous quips, part of them arise from this relationship precisely, or perhaps from the lack of a relationship gosh we're shading the king like everyone (laughs) ever in this shade shade yeah um you see there is a proper cat fight between Feliciana and the new and younger lovers of king afonso but these ladies were not slapping and pulling hair no they were fighting in rhymes classy Uh, classy a little bit like a rap fight or something (laughs) these were petty snooty poems going around the court feliciana wins there's ding 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 yeah ding 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 exactly (laughs) but um she wins in words at least although i mean the other ladies they get to keep the king's interest as for letters one of the most famous today is the letter where feliciana in which feliciana explains why she couldn't possibly have written another letter that was attributed to her like so, we mentioned let, above <laughs> yeah. about identity theft and so exactly exactly but let, let me try to explain this one so there was this famous priest antonio vieira who is one of the most impressive intellectuals of the 17th century in Portugal, and he is still famous today. We have to study his sermons in school, and... (laughs) Yeah, there's this one, the one we had to study at school. It's one where he's actually lecturing fish. So, <laughs> you make it eh, sound so like minor. Anyway, he was a Jesuit and a big deal, and he came to the court of the Prince Regent Pedro. So, Pedro, Peter, uh, it's King Afonso's brother, the one who, who actually became the ruler, uh, although he went by Prince Regent. 
while he bro- his brother was alive. Uh, and then he eventually became King Peter II, King Pedro II. So, anyway, Priest Antonio came to the court of Peter II, where he gave one of his famous sermons, um, and it included some religious points with the general feeling of support for the Prince Regent, to legitimize, of course, this taken of the power by uh, the brother. A little while later, there's this letter that starts circulating in court, arguing with what Priest Antonio was just um, saying and showing support for King Afonso, who was by that time in prison. And this is the one that supposedly was signed by Feliciana. Scandal. Scandal. And this actually was not only a, a, a little scandal, it was actually very dangerous for her because she was now talking against the Prince Regent, the so-to-be king. Um, and what Feliciana thought, thought was that the best way to set matters straight was to really issue another letter of her own writing where berating everyone for believing <laughs> that she would have written such a letter. So <laughs> yeah. her basic point being that she would surely have written a much better letter than that <laughs> that one i mean that's a, some sass right there isn't it it's like <laughs> how dare you i write much better than that <laughs> yeah and we're obviously oversimplifying this and, and not going into detail on the letter but it actually stands as one of the first theoretical proto-feminist stands in portugal um where she defends herself against the identity theft And she goes on about how women can actually discuss intellectually a sermon, just like any man would. And on top of that, she also provides some more political commentary. So it's big. Huh? Yeah, it's it's a, uh, yeah, it's a big deal. Of the other letters, we have uh, some I would like to mention. One of them seems to involve the Queen Catherine of Braganza. Um, she was queen consort of the English king Charles II. It's all in code, so there are quite a few possible interpretations, but it seems uh, one of them seems to be that uh, it would be about Queen Catherine. There is also one where Feliciana finds out that her lover, not a king, but uh, this one's another fellow, uh, had been corresponding with two other nuns and several around, you know, all the drama with the King Afonso's lovers. Um, we have some more, but I would say maybe these are the main ones. And we also have a variety of other letters, some poetry. Uh, however, as we said in the beginning, the majority of them have been lost. Given the nature of this genre and how this, these letters moved around and they were not printed or published, it makes it even harder to, to preserve and, and most of them were easily lost. And we could go into like a few of the, of the letters that she wrote and we could select a few more. And there are so many like political um, subjects there are and political themes that are connected and or mentioned in this those letters and for us to be here doing this episode about her we would need to be explaining all this like other political drama and political figures that that are mentioned or everything and that would make it really hard 
Yeah, and um, you know, it would be interesting as well to go over some of her poetry, for instance. But to be fair, I mean, this is 17th century writing and in Portuguese, and it's quite hard to translate. I feel like we would just be <laughs> butchering things left and right and uh, people not really getting the sense of it. I feel like we're just, you know, giving a sense of what she did and her work and, you know, why Feliciana stood out. Right, and and why you chose her, as we said before, and, and what makes her so outstanding as well is that she allows us to look into 17th century Portugal and for into this specific kind of writing that gives us a lot about the political situation, that gives us a lot about women in relation to that, and convents as these places that are so interesting and bubbling at the time with, like, this intellectual production and that's 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 really interesting that's really cool yeah. isn't it yeah that, that's one of the things isn't it it allows us to you know just take a little peek into oh this is a very interesting and different literary genre and oh life in convents and oh um women in the 17th century and stuff like that so yeah that's i guess a little bit the picture we want to paint with the um, by looking into feliciana's life and, I mean, this brings us to the end of our episode. Um, Feliciana seems to have passed in the year of 1705, and when she was 76 years old. <laughs> Apparently, she wished to have had written on her grave, Aqui jaz a pecadora, which translated means, here lies the sinner. <laughs> but, um, I mean, it's great. But her wishes were not obliged, so no oh, people were it, like. I, love it. <laughs> I uh, know people were like. Be so good. No, <laughs> no, <laughs> we're not. We're not writing that. <laughs> and dear listeners, this brings us to the end of our episode. We will be sharing some more stuff about Feliciana and all this incredibly interesting stuff on our Instagram. <laughs> yeah, and we'll also be sharing about the wine we're drinking today because it's it's tasting very good. It is lovely. Yeah, and send us send us a um, a public letter if you want. <laughs> oh, by any means, public or private. I mean, yeah, just send it. us a letter. Yeah. And this is where we'll stop for now. Join us on the next episode. Until then, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Corkout History Pod, where you can reach out to us, let us know your thoughts, and discover more about the episodes. Don't forget to rate and subscribe wherever you're listening to us. Your comments really are crucial so that more people can find us. Bye! Bye.